I want to speak this morning on the uh, theme of Christian marriage, and I think I'm qualified to uh, speak on that, preach on that, since I am married and have been all my life. <laughs> and since I have counseled uh, people, literally hundreds of people, I think, concerning Christian marriage. And I have found some who are wanting in marriage and some who are wanting out. Someone said that marriage is like a besieged city. Those who are on the inside are wanting out. And those who are wanting on the outside are wanting in. And I've seen some desperately unhappy couples. She sat across the desk from my, in my office, a study of despondency and unhappiness. And we talked about her marriage and the unhappiness in her life. And she ended the conversation that day with this statement. She said, I don't know a single couple who is happily married. And I said, oh, come on. No, you don't really mean that. Surely you know some people who are happily married. And she kind of um, set her jaw and said, I'm serious. I don't know a single couple who is happily married. There's some kind of preaching on this subject that's um, preventive in nature. Most of that kind, most of the preaching on Christian marriage is. We run up these uh, flags on the lakes of temptation, warning that the winds out there are wild and stormy. And we send up these red flares, warning that if we cross this boundary, such and such a boundary, that doom is inevitable. And that's good preaching. But there's another kind of preaching on this subject that is even more difficult. It's the kind of preaching that seeks to rescue what can be rescued from the craft that's already about to capsize on the lake of temptation. It's the kind of preaching that plunges into the dangerous rapids and says, we're in this thing together and let's see if we can find a way out. That's the kind of preaching that I want to do this morning. Let's assume today that the woman was right, or at least she was partly right. Let's assume that there are many, many couples that are desperately unhappy in their marriage. Let's assume that the psychologist was right on who said that in America there are 20 million couples who are desperately unfulfilled and unhappy in their marriage. Their dreams of a happy marriage have turned sour. Let's assume this morning that the good ship of matrimony is taking water and is about to capsize. Is there any word from God concerning marriage for these of us? I think there is from an unlikely text perhaps. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And I want to paraphrase that verse like this. Love your spouse as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For Christ loved the church, the unfaithful church. For hasn't the church been guilty of spiritual adultery, the bride of Christ? 
And haven't the prophets accused the people of God of playing the harlot? Hasn't God's people been unfaithful? And he loved his people. He loved the church. And so Paul says, that's the way I am to love my wife. I am to love, take my pattern of love for my wife from the pattern of love Christ had for the church. A love that worked when everything else got jammed up. It is a love, first of all, that faces the issues. Christ loved the church with a let's face the issues kind of love. The issue of man's never-ending predicament. The issue of man's temptation to sin and his sin. The issue of man's possible salvation and his possible destruction. A lesser desire to face the issue by Jesus would have resulted in a sterile crib rather than a, than a smelly manger. A crown of majesty instead of a crown of thorns. A cross-town preaching mission instead of a cross between two thieves. But he faced the issue and he said, this is what's wrong with you. And this is what I'm going to do about it. And this is what you must do about it. It's time to face the issue. Where are you in your marriage? I mean, what is it like? What are you doing about it? What are you working at? Where do you need to begin? What needs to be done? It's time to face the issues. A lot of couples I have counseled feel that they've just kind of trapped in their marriage. They're, they've just kind of been, they've just kind of painted themselves into a corner or more precisely perhaps they've been painted into a corner for we moderns have a tremendous knack of passing the buck to someone else. And with two death strokes, they've just kind of painted themselves or been painted into a corner and there's no way out. And the first stroke that has painted them into the corner is the contrast between man's need and his pace. More than at any other time in the history of man, he, has, he needs the fulfillment that a successful marriage can give him. Impersonalization has crept into every pore from everywhere. He's a vote, he's a number, he's a statistic, he's a punch card, he's everything but a person. And more than at any other time in his life, he needs the fulfillment of successful relationship, the kind that marriage provides. But on the other hand, he finds himself less at home than any other husband or father, she finds herself less at home than any other wife and mother in the history of mankind. Yesterday's rural picture of man was, or families were, people who lived together and worked together and ate together and played together. They saw each other at breakfast, dinner, and supper. You can forget that. Those days are gone. The average businessman spends less than three nights a week at home. I'm told that in Dallas, Texas, the average executive spends four nights a week at home every two weeks. Four nights every two weeks at home. And when he's home, he has all kinds of pressures and problems on him. So the contrast is this. 
I have a greater need for a successful marriage than in any other time in the history of man. And at the same time, I have less time to work at it. And that's halfway painted us into the corner. And the second stroke is the immaturity of marriage. We marry immature. The average age of the woman is 18. The average age of the man is 20. And as they begin to mature, they begin to discover this is not really the person that I married. We don't even have the same goals or ambitions or interests Sometimes we don't even have the same needs. And as the couple grow older, they mature. And as they mature and grow, they often mature and grow apart. I heard about the elderly man who was asked by his friend, Sam, if you had it all to do over, would you marry her again? And he kind of thought about it a little bit and stroked his chin and said, you mean like she is or like she was. <laughs> we do change, don't we? And as we grow and as we mature and as we change, we often grow apart. And infidelity and unfaithfulness often occurs because we begin to discover, hey, this is not the person I really married. Somebody else will best fit my needs. Let's face the issue. The love that Christ had for the church was a love that talked back. Christ's kind of love was a conversing kind of love. Muhlenberg and Union Seminary says that you can sum up the Bible in one word, hear, H-E-A-R. The biblical God is a God who speaks. He's a God who converses Call unto me and I will answer thee, he said. In other words, God says, you talk to me and I'll talk back to you and we'll communicate. Except for that kind of a desire for communication, there would be no possibility of a divine human relationship if God did not wish to converse, to speak, to say, there would be no possibility of a divine human relationship. As a matter of fact, without communication, there can be no deep, intimate relationship of any kind. When communication breaks down in marriage, love breaks down in marriage. A little girl one time was kind of admonished by her parents, honey, you need to think before you speak. You need, you need to wait and talk until you think about what you're saying. And the little girl said innocently, how can I know what I'm thinking until I've heard what I've got to say? How can she know what's on your mind until she hears from you? How can he know what you're thinking if you don't talk to him? How in his book, The Miracle of Dialogue, says, communication is to love what blood is to the body. For there can be no expression of love or life, he said, apart from communication. 
When communication stops and marriage says how, love is blocked and its energy turns to resentment and hostility. Do you talk to her? Do you communicate with him? Do you visit? Don't wait until you, it's too late and you have to sing Willie Nelson's song about the things you should have done and should have said. Thomas Carlyle's wife was devoted to him and waited day after day for him just to talk to her, to speak to her, to express his love, but he never did. And when he found her diary after her death, it read, I wish today he would just say he appreciates me. And Thomas Carlyle held that, that diary in his hands and wept and said, I wish I had her back just for one hour to tell her how I feel. But it was too late. The kind of love Christ had for the church was a love that talks back. The kind of love that Christ had for the church was a love that takes a stand. The first historic here I stand, I can do no other, was Jesus himself. He forced the issue. He, he made people take a choice. He said, make a choice. He said, I've come to bring a sword. He polarized thinking about him. It sure is difficult to get people in marriage to take a stand, to say, I believe in this marriage. I'm going to be here when you're gone, and I'm going to stand out on the, on the way, and my love's going to follow you into your far country, and I'm going to be waiting for you when you get back. You can be unfaithful to me, but I'm going to be faithful to you. I love you, and I'm going to stand on this marriage. It sure, get, it sure is difficult to get people to do that. A couple came into my office one time, and they talked about what might be. They talked about what that they might love each other, that they might want to make it work, that they might want to stay married, that they might do this or that. I said, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's just sit down this week, and this is what I was sharing with them. Why don't you sit down eyeball to eyeball and make a commitment to one another? You say to one another, I receive you from God as God's gift, and I'm going to be here to the end of this thing. I'm going to love you all the way to the end of it. And I want you to make a commitment to one another this week and you come back next week and we'll begin to talk how we can put that commitment into action. They never came back because they were not ready to make that kind of here I stand commitment. Did you see Ricardo Montalban when he was on the Johnny Carson show? Now I know you know who he is. He's that cosmopolitan debonair, suave man that's on, uh, on uh, Fantasy Island. Now, I know you watch that. I've never seen it, but I'm told <laughs> that he's on there. He was on the uh, Johnny Carson show, and Johnny Carson said, uh, Ricardo Montalban, you know, you're a Latin, and Latins are great lovers. Now, he said, tell me what you can considered to be what the person you consider to be a great lover. What is a great lover? And Ricardo Montalban said, I think a great lover is a man 
who makes a commitment to fulfill the need of his wife for as long as they live. He said anybody, a great lover is not somebody who can just jump from one bed to the next. He said any dog can do that. He said a great lover is a man who makes a commitment to fulfill the need of another for as long as that other person lives. And I don't think that's what Johnny... There has to be that kind of commitment. Have you received her just as God's gift from heaven to you? You see, you're not together as a freak stroke of human coincidence. You're together because of a divine stroke of providence. And you can say with James, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And you say, well, she's certainly not perfect in my eyes. Well, that may be true, but you may be looking through the wrong eyes. And I've seen couples who had no real emotion, no real feeling toward one another at all. And they've made these kind of here-I-stand commitments. They've made these kind of here-I-stand dedications to one another. And they've received one another with all of the imperfection and the flaws that are there. And I've watched as God's love has been released because of that commitment in their life. And I've seen that emotion begin to build back because of their commitment to one another. If I love my wife as Christ loved the church in the fourth place, it was a love that allowed diversity. You see, even though Christ loved the church, he is not the church. That is, he's not dissolved by it. There are many ways in which Christ is dependent upon the church. There are many ways in which he's not. The church is imperfect and Jesus is perfect. He is not the church, nor is he dissolved by it. There is a modern myth that when two people become married, they just dissolve, you know, like two Alka-Seltzers and a glass of water. That's a myth. That's, there could be nothing farther from the truth. Neither personality ceases to be. And even though it is true that we, are, we do not live to ourselves, it is also true that we ourselves and because we're selves, we're different. And God likes that. He seems to delight in diversity. He disdains sameness. He avoids stereotyping. So that every leaf on every tree is, is unique. And every human fingerprint is different. For every entity in God's creation has its own identity. And that identity that your spouse has, the uniqueness of her personality or his, contributes to the fulfillment of your life if you allow for that. She's there, he's there for a special reason. I talked with a couple one time and I could tell they didn't like each other too well. And I said, I'll tell you what you do. You sit here and take this piece of paper and I kind of moved them across the room from one another. And I said, now I want you to write what you'd like to change about him, and I want you to write what you'd like to change about her. It took about a half an hour. And when I, when I, got, this, when I got the information, I, I took it, I put it on my desk, and I didn't even look at it. I said, 
Did you know that you don't have the right to change one another? And then I said, you know what I hear you saying? I hear you saying, I'm having a problem liking you or loving you because you're not like me. I'm, having a, I'm going to have trouble staying in this marriage and loving you because you're not like me. You don't think like I think. You don't act like I, react like I react. You don't have the same emotions that I have. I said, look, God made us different. And that diversity contributes to the fulfillment of ourselves if we, like, if we allow that. Finally, the kind of love that Christ had for the church was a love that sacrifices. I mean, he gave himself up for her. Did you hear that? He died for the church. He gave himself up for the church and died for it. He sacrificed. It's a kind of love that a person has to have in marriage, a sacrificial kind of love. I give up my life for you. And so the wife says, I sacrifice my life to bring children into the world. And the husband says, the father says, I sacrifice my time to love and teach those children and to train them up and bring them up in the nurture of God. And the wife says, I sacrifice my passions and my desires on the altar of patience and say to my husband, I love you. And the husband says, I sacrifice my unfaithfulness on the altar of patience and say to my wife, I love you. I give it up for you. I'm here in death for you to sacrifice all that I have been accustomed to having in singleness. That sacrificial relationship is imperative. A few months ago, I was called back to do the funeral of a man in North Fort Worth, probably the godliest man that I, that I know, just the sweetest, godliest man in all the world. His name is George Sims. Lee and Peggy know him. He's a dear man. His wife is Lulu. Now, you, just have, you, you would have to know George and Lulu to know what it was like, that sweet couple. They were the greatest, weren't they? George Sims and Lulu have been married for about 55 years, I think. He was so sacri- he, he was the most sacrificial man. He just lived his life for other people. And he had hip surgery, and he was in the hospital, and she was all broken down with arthritis, had both knees uh, operated on, and these artificial knees placed, put in there, and her shoulders were troubled with arthritis, and, and they were just crippled up. But they just really loved each other and he got real sick and so I was called out about two o'clock in the morning and I went down to uh, St. Anthony's Hospital he was in emergency surgery and Lulu was there all crippled up walking on crutches and I sat with her that night all through the night on that time and this is what she said about George 
She said, you know, he's the greatest man in all the world. She just bragged on him. And she said, Brother Gerald, he just lived his life for me and for the kids and for other people. Said, that's all he wanted to do, just live for us. He didn't think a thing about the sacrifice. He just loved us and just lived for us. And there she was, sitting there in pain, you know, watching. Well, he survived the surgery, and he was in a hospital bed, and she'd sit with him in the daytime in great pain and suffering. One day I stepped into the room, and she was out. She was gone. I talked to George. You know what he said about Lulu? He said, I'm worried about Lulu. He said, all she wants to do is sit up here and take care of me. He said, that's all she's done all of her life. He said, she never thought anything, just repeated what she said about him. He said, she said, never thought anything about the sacrifice. She just lived her life for me and the kids and everybody else. And she's saying that about George, and George was saying that about Lulu. And I went out to the hospital corridor saying that about both of them. And thinking in my mind, that must have been what Jesus was talking about when he said, husband, wife, love your spouse as Christ. Love the church and gave himself up for her. Now I know the danger preaching a sermon like this. There's some of you are saying, well, that doesn't pertain to me. But maybe it'll just bring back some happy memories. And there's some of you are saying, you know that pertains to me. But if I make a public, a public decision about that, people think that we're just fixing to get a divorce. <laughs> if I went forward and, and they'll just think it, that we're having an awful time. But God has led me to lead this time of invitation this way. I want you, if you're sitting by your wife or your husband, I wish you'd just reach over there and take her hand. Now I know that you have, you're not your marriage is a happy one. And I know that that girl was not talking about you when she said, I don't know, happy couple. I know that. I know you have a good marriage. I'm wondering if it could be better if you face the issue, if you begin to talk, if you begin to take some stands and to allow some diversity. I wonder if it could be better if you begin to make some sacrifices today. And I want to give a time of public commitment, time of courage, time of response, time where a couple might want to come and we'll have prayer in a moment. Just come stand here at the place where God meets us in dedication surrender and commitment to say I want to commit my marriage and my home and my family to the Lord 
And I want to be everything that God needs me to be and my spouse needs me to be in this marriage, this home. And there are others of you who may want to come this morning and place your life here in this church. This is your home. There's a couple, as a father and mother, husband and wife, you need to be together in the church, serving God in a church, in a, in, a, in a fellowship of believers. Perhaps because you've never trusted Christ, you don't have the resources that God makes available through His Holy Spirit. You'd like to come to say, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to receive Him my personal savior, a child might want to come to say, my parents are Christians and they've been teaching me and telling me about Christ. I want to come to become a Christian. I'll lead us in prayer and then you'll lead us in dedication as you come. Father, I thank you for the example of George and Lulu Sims the example of a Christian marriage. I thank you for the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who loved us in that unusual way and taught us that that's the way we are to love one another. Taught us that that's the kind of relationship we must have. And I pray, Father, this morning for those of us who are in the valley of decision, who need to respond, who need to make certain steps, make certain decisions today. And I pray that you'll lead us, lead us forward, lead us onward, lead us upward, lead us now. Help us to know that it's so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word and to rest upon His promise, to know, thus saith the Lord. I pray that we can trust Him today with our lives and our marriages, that we can do it unashamedly and publicly and before others, because I pray in Christ's name for his sake. Now in the spirit of prayer, do you understand what you're asked to do? Would you come while we stand and our choir sings?